Hi, I'm Panic in the UK, and this is Panicky Pictures. <coughs> Everybody's talking about the new Russell T Davies drama, It's a Sin. Or they were, like, six weeks ago. I'll admit I missed the boat a little bit here. But in amongst all of the people raving about the show on my Twitter feed was a lone dissenting voice, my friend Johnny Rhodes, whom you might remember from my Christmas episode. I invited him back on the pod to talk Russell T Davies, It's a Sin, and alternative HIV-AIDS narratives. This is coming out a bit later than I intended. I had time management issues, scheduling issues, technical issues. You name an issue, I had it, but we got there in the end. Once again, this was recorded via Skype, but this time I made sure the right mic was connected, so my voice sounds way better. I hope you enjoy. watch Queer as Folk, the UK Queer as Folk, when that was on? So I didn't watch Queer as Folk when it originally aired. I would have, yeah. I was not we aware We were like nine or ten, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, maybe it would have uh, got me to a certain place earlier. <laughs> but basically, no, I actually heard of Queer as Folk when I was at a friend's house and one of those Channel 4 100 Greatest clip shows was on TV and they had the 100 Greatest Sexiest Moments and Queer as Folk was in like the top 10 and it had clips of like the sex scene in the, the first episode, like the rimming. And I remember I remember there was like interviews with the producers where they were talking about how they made the cum or something. <laughs> with, I remember this because I was probably about... 12 or so maybe 13 when I saw this thing and I remember seeing that clip and it was like one of the first times I'd seen anything gay and I was a bit kind of hmm and uh, and then years later a couple of years later when I think I was maybe starting to realize I was gay a bit more and maybe trying to seek out more sort of gay narratives I found out about it and I put the connection together. I was like, oh, that's that show that I saw on that clip show. Oh, that's what it's called. And oh, there's a British one and an American one. And at that point, I I don't think it was out on DVD, but I sort of download, I tried to download it and I managed to download the first, I think, two episodes of the UK one. And then I wasn't able to download any more, but I was able to get hold of the US one. So then I started okay. watching the US one and I, and I had dial-up internet and I used to be able to only download one episode a day. It took about four hours. <laughs> so I used to come back from school, download an episode of Queer as Folk and watch it before I went to bed. And I did that. And when I started watching the American one, it was, it had just finished, I think, the fourth out of its five seasons. So I like basically just watched an episode a night for, I can't remember, months, years, until I caught up and watched the final one in 2005 in sort of real time and then eventually I think I bought the bought the UK one on DVD and did watch it um, mm. maybe like a year or two after that so very long-winded story but <laughs> yes um, Queer as Folk I would say was definitely like a formative thing it was definitely yeah. one of the first times I saw kind of gay like narrative just gay people like living their lives and gay romances and I don't know I hate using the word lifestyle but it's kind of the first time I'd really seen gay lives in fiction and on tv and i do i probably would have watched the uk one if i could have done first but it just so happens that the american one was really my real gateway into that and it was definitely one of the most important things to me realizing i was gay when i was like mm. 16 
Yeah, I've never seen the American one. I saw the the UK one when I was 14. Um, it aired on E4 in the middle of the night, um, and I've always been a night person, so I would be up. Um, and yeah, I just caught it. And for me too, it was really, really formative. Uh, I think that and probably Tales of the City were the two like early like queer things that I was consuming. Um, and I guess I, there wasn't really anything. There wasn't a lot of stuff that centered on lesbians or queer women, really. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the L word, I guess, but I never really got into that. I don't know if it was because it was on a channel that I didn't have or it was like on at a weird time or what, but I never really watched that. Um, so pretty much all the stuff when I was around that age that I was getting into very much centered on like, yeah, like cis white gay men, because that was pretty much what like everything was at the time um but yeah it was definitely really formative for me but I kind of feel like looking back in terms of like the representation of lesbians in that show it's not great and you know it's very white it's very cis blah 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 but yeah I mean it was incredibly important to me at the time and I guess you know it's it's kind of like the Brokeback Mountain thing where you know looking back on it you can criticize it for being of its time and you know all of these things but at the time it was incredibly important and you know it was one of the only things that we had really particularly in the mainstream right yeah I think so and I think well I I think that even at the time I watched it there were certain things I could tell were like slightly ropey about it um I didn't really care but um, and I, but when I've tried to watch it since, and I have actually tried to watch the US one since as well, and it, I don't think the US one is is particularly much better. It's a bit more, I don't know. It's they're quite different tonally, but I, I'm not saying that necessarily the American one got it much better. But it did have a lot more time to create story arcs in in that slightly more traditional way that maybe appeals to me. Um, but I think that the when I have watched it again, I found not just the kind of elements of it to do with representation, which, yes, you are slightly forgiving of it because of its time, but just the, the screenplay and some of the writing, I find yeah. a little bit ropey. And I feel like it's that's what Russell T. Davis's style is a bit like. And mm. it's then something that I see in his other work that I find you know, I have a problem with it in basically all of his work, but it's very much still there in Queer as Folk. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I don't think that I did find it ropey when I was watching it the first time around. I thought, I, I'm pretty sure that the first time I ever saw Queer as Folk, the UK version, I thought it was great. Um, I don't think I've ever attempted to watch it as an adult, um, but certainly I have memories of certain things now that looking back, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's not the best writing now that I think about it. Um, yeah, I mean, um, obviously his run on Doctor Who is very popular with a lot of people. It's not, doesn't do it for me personally. I don't know if you um, are a big fan of his Doctor Who run or Torchwood. Um, I haven't, I've not, I've only seen like maybe one or two episodes of Doctor Who. And I, I think the one I remember was like not of Russell T. Davis. Mm episode so um i mean 
yeah, his run on Doctor Who has a really big following. Um, personally, it doesn't really resonate with me that much. And Moffat, like, for all that he is very, very unpopular among, you know, vast weights of the fandom, for me, uh, his approach to it worked a lot better for me. And also, I think some of the accusations of sexism leveled against him could just as easily be leveled against Davies, or even more so. And he actually originated quite a few of the queer characters on that show. And then Davies gets credit for it because he was the showrunner. But they were actually like in Moffat episodes. I'm getting off track. But anyway, um, <laughs> but yeah. So and then he wrote that thing, The Second Coming. Did you ever see that? Russell T. Davies. This. Yeah. No, I don't think I know that. Name rings a bell. But... Yeah, it was like um, it was on ITV and it was basically like a messianic thing um and there was this thing about demons and stuff it was all very kind of judeo-christian bit in the modern world um and that had uh christopher eccleston in it um and then he did years and years which i didn't see so this is the first thing i've watched by him for quite a while actually did yeah. you see you didn't see like cucumber or you did you see a very english scandal no i haven't seen either of those did you watch those um so yeah i feel like a very english scandal probably is russell t davis's best work mm. um, in the sense that when i saw it i i knew it was him but i didn't i don't know his signature didn't quite stand out so much and I found it an interesting historical story. I thought it was Hugh Grant was pretty great in it actually. I just quite liked it. I just it. need to check something because I seriously thought that a very English scandal was Andrew Davis. And I just want to like double check I, that that's not Am the I case. getting this wrong? Um I don't know. Let me check. Because that would be quite funny <laughs> if you're like it's the best thing he's ever written. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, it actually was him. Yeah, sorry. In my head, it was Andrew Davies. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's part of the um, Paddington uh, cinematic universe. So uh, <laughs> this is Ben Wisher and Hugh Wait, Grant. wait, there's a second series? Yeah, apparently oh my God. by Sarah Phelps. I know, I didn't know that either. Um, well, I don't watch that much stuff on, so I can watch stuff on Boxer Broadcasts if I really want to, but I don't have a TV license, so I don't watch a lot of stuff that airs on the BBC. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, I just, I, I didn't get around to it. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I, I I liked A Very English Scandal. Um, didn't think it was amazing, but I, I thought it was fine. Mm. Um, and But Cucumber, which I was like looking forward to see when it came out, um, I saw the first episode of that and it was one of the most excruciatingly written bits of TV I can remember watching. It was just, it's when I really kind of got a handle on what is his style and what yeah. I really like about it. It was just the the humour. The humour is very much kind of like unexpected vulgarity, but in a kind of over the top way that it's not there's no wit behind it it sounds really mm. snobbish but I just it just doesn't do it for me and there's this whole there's quite a lot of monologuing as well where mm. you know this guy does this whole monologue about how much he wants to have sex with Ryan Reynolds and it's just really embarrassing and it's obviously it's supposed to be embarrassing the characters but you're kind of embarrassed for the for the writing of what it's trying to go for yeah. and what it's not 
doing. I don't even um, really know what the premise of Cucumber is. What's the premise? Is, it's kind of in, in a basic way, queer as folk, but um, older guys. Okay, so, okay. Uh, it's sort of the central guy. Um, I think he splits up with his boyfriend, his or his husband. Uh, he's in his forties or fifties. Um, you know, he's got an older group of friends. It's kind of like a midlife crisis sort of um, middle-aged queer as folk, okay. type, which as a, as a concept is is fine. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I, just, I don't think it's a bad premise. Yeah, and I just you know, and I feel like it just got given. I, I only watched maybe two or three episodes. Apparently there's a significant death that happens in it. I didn't watch that far. And the, uh, to be fair, there was one episode which focused on the, one of the female characters in it, which was okay. I remember quite liking that episode, um, but I just, I didn't finish it. Well, even in Queer as Folk, there's a significant death, right? Um, yeah. There's their friend Philip, is it? Yeah. Who yeah. dies from, I don't know. Does he, is it like he overdoses on drugs or something yes yes which yeah interestingly in the american one happens to one of like the lead characters but they don't die um uh-huh. because they then become the lead character and then they become a crystal meth addict years later <laughs> but anyway um okay folk usa was very much let's do a storyline about every single possible gay issue we're going to do hiv we're going to do uh crystal meth addiction we're going to do homophobia at school you know it's very much like that yeah uh, it seemed yeah. like it was more soapy um just because it went on for longer i guess the the us version from what i heard about it yeah i think i think it was um and, and you know cucumber i just i was just surprised that people gave it quite an easy pass uh you know a huge amount of attention in the press i think it was out just after looking which i mm. loved and i was and looking got a slightly more muted reaction, although as it went on, most people seem to come around to it. And now it's considered to be pretty great. But I was just like, why, why, why are we kind of giving this a free pass? And that mm. has then, then when I saw years and years, I kind of watched the first episode and I, I didn't really like it. And mm. again, it was very like these sort of monologue bits, which sound kind of like they're trying to be clever but I just don't I just don't believe people talk like that and they're not done in a way that is you know exciting enough in terms of the dialogue for me to kind of look past the fact that it's really unrealistic as well yeah I think that's a real for me that is a real hallmark of his writing is try hard naturalism if that makes any sense like an example I'm thinking of in It's a Sin is that conversation between Roscoe and his sister about the baby's name when he's like, you know, it's Stella without an R. Stella doesn't have an R in it. I mean, the word Stella has an R in it, but the name Stella doesn't have an R in it. You know, it, and it's like, this isn't yes. like... Um, it's like that scene in It's a Sin where Richie first meets with Ash and there's that conversation where he's like, oh, uh, you're Muslim, aren't you? Oh, oh no, you're Hindu. Oh, no, you're Muslim, aren't you? And I get the point of this conversation. I know that it, I know that it is trying to make a point about, you know, a white gay man's ignorance and mm. insensitivity and stereotyping, which is all great. You know, put that scene, a, a version of that scene in. But I just don't believe that someone would talk like this because it it's very much like, yeah. it goes on too long. And it's very much so the audience understands that he's being insensitive and that he's being, you know, this is really yeah. awkward. And, but it's just, you know, no one would, would go on and 
oh yes oh yeah like in this yeah, very yeah, yeah. forced way yeah and I then mean, and i just, i don't hate that scene and i think it's one of the few times that ash gets anything to do so i appreciate it on that level but yes um i do agree like absolutely it just it just pushes it a little bit too far without actually doing anything interesting it's just repetitive Mm -hmm. i i do agree with that i didn't see years and years but i saw um i saw the really famous monologue about like automated self-checkouts in tesco's that everybody was talking about and i was kind of like i don't know like i get frustrated with people being anti-automation because i think automation and it's again really straying from the central point but like I think that automation in and of itself is potentially a really good thing. It's just how it's used. And I feel like um, we should be uh, promoting the possibility of a post-labor economy. Anyway, not to get distracted or anything, but yeah. So, just, um, this, yeah, years and years. In, there was this monologue in years and years where, you know, it's about, it's basically um, my my boyfriend described it as liberal anxiety propaganda um, <laughs> in terms of it's like anything that, that, you know, most liberal people now worried about turn to the max. It's like all the all the greatest fears shown in terms of this sort of near dystopian future, but done in a very like checkboxy, obvious way. And I remember there's a whole thing about a rising politician played by Emma Thompson, who's this sort of populist figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this monologue where you know, people are laughing at something she's saying. And then someone says something like, I think the line is something like, Beware the jokesters and the tricksters and the clowns. They're going to laugh us into hell. You know, it's just like trying to make this point. Yeah, you know, you know you laugh, how people you, talk, right? Yeah, I just, you know, I know the point it's trying to make is that, you know, these populist far-right movements use sort of humour to get people on their side and, you know, not think that they're actually dangerous. But, you know, to have this sort of monologue in that way that then people can kind of use as like a soundbite it just winds me up because it just feels so sort of on the nose. Mm. Yes. And I think it's funny, isn't it? Because like these ticks are things that really didn't bother me when I first saw the original Queer Folk. And I never liked like the series uh, Queer Folk 2 as much, but like that Queer Folk original series I was obsessed with it and it meant so much to me. And like, I loved the writing of that. And it's so funny to look back now and think, you know, just, yes, that my tastes have changed so much, but he does still seem to have very wide appeal um, to a lot of people. A lot of people love this stuff. I think the thing as well, that I mean, there are a lot of reasons why uh, I think I can forgive queer folk a lot but in some ways its ambitions weren't quite so high as Mm. his more recent work I mean they were then but you know I feel like it wasn't trying to operate on quite as many levels and I feel like the more more I see that in some of his recent work the more I kind of see the the kind of cracks Mm. that makes sense um like, you know, trying to create this epic story that, that It's a Sin was and um, Years and Years was, uh, I feel like it, it kind of shows up these issues I have with his writing more than um, a sort of slightly more soapy... You slice know, of life, just right? I mean, slice that's of life, yeah. what Queer as Folk was. It was just yeah. kind of like, here's some gay guys and here's what they get up to. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't epic. Mm. Uh, it kind of felt epic at the time when there wasn't anything else you could watch that was about gay guys getting up to stuff. But like, yeah, 
um in retrospect it was yeah it was kind of um cozy i suppose but Mm. there is something cozy about his writing even when he's tackling the big stuff i feel like Mm. and i don't mean that necessarily in a good way yeah i think so i mean it's since obviously been very accessible for people and i can see that that is objectively a good thing especially with regards to well with regards to the representation in general in a number of his shows but in specifically this case and telling the story of um the hiv crisis you know i think there is a place for it and there is an element where i can stand Mm -hmm. back and be like okay it's not for me but i can see the value in this existing and um i I think it's good that you know a lot of people have maybe learned about this for the first time um and i think it does come down to that that element of his writing that is that i don't know people just gravitate to or they find it goes down quite easily i don't know yes i i definitely think that's true and i think that maybe yes i mean what it reminds me of is something like a fantastic woman which i think i mean i don't like i think a lot of trans people don't like but was really important in its own country in bringing certain issues to the fore and also outside its own country for people who maybe weren't engaging with that kind of story previously um but with it's a sin it's so interesting isn't it because for me I guess it goes to show how much the AIDS crisis hasn't been sufficiently memorialized, that this is coming as a shock to people, that people don't know about this, you know, because I feel like it's it's loomed very large for me. And I think we've spoken about this before, that it was something that for both of us was a big deal. It was something we thought about a lot and, you know, consumed a lot of media on the subject Whereas I guess for maybe younger people and straight people, it's just not something that they've really engaged with so much. But that was kind of a surprise for me, like how much people didn't seem to know about this already. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And I, I it makes me reconsider or it makes me think more about, OK, why do I know about HIV, AIDS, and a mixture of, you know, being gay, the things I've consumed, and my age. Um, And it it does make you, I kind of, I don't know, maybe it does surprise in a way, because you think, okay, well, fair enough, this is why I know more about this, and why I want this to be better. But Mm. not, not, not many other people, or not a lot of people, clearly, are going into that with this same knowledge or experience of having seen these stories kind of being told before which is why you know for me the best bits of it to sit I think it started off better than it finished and I thought Mm. probably the second and third episodes were the best because it was showing the beginnings of this crisis from British perspective and I haven't really seen that before and I found the element of which it was we kind of have seen it in America, but we hadn't sort of, I hadn't really considered about the delay in it coming over to the UK and how there was this period where people, there was this divide of people not really believing it, you know, and thinking yeah. it was so far away. And, you know, pre-internet and pre the rest of it, it, everything must have seemed much, you know, it was, it's in a different world. We don't need to think about it now. And dealing with the division in the gay community about that, I thought, 
okay, I've not seen that story done before. And that does seem a specifically British thing that I'm glad is being shown here. And I quite liked the bit that it almost got a bit procedural with Jill, you know, having this little side story where she's discovering something on her own and she's almost investigating and getting to the point where she's like, okay, this is what's going on. I thought that was that was probably my favorite bit of the show and also I thought that even though lots of the characters were fairly broadly drawn I thought the character of Colin the performance just um elevated it above the rest and I I found him a very endearing character and oh uh, yeah obviously he was in those episodes more than later ones so I think that <laughs> contributed to me liking those uh, yeah, I those think we can say we're, we're going to be spoiling it's a sin so yeah. we can probably uh yeah talk about uh, what happens to poor Colin Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I mean, I would say I think overall I did like It's a Sin more than you did, which is not to say that I didn't have problems with it, uh, which I certainly did. But I think it worked just slightly better for me than it did for you. So just to kind of get that out of the way. Um, but, yeah, I totally agree that in terms of seeing a British perspective um, on the AIDS crisis, it does definitely feel like something fresh um and pretty much everything else i've seen has come out of the u.s i think apart from um there is like a tv movie from 1993 called closing numbers which i watched very recently but that's pretty much the only other thing i've seen um that was like made and based in in the uk so i definitely think that that perspective is interesting and as you say yeah i think that that delay and i think also kind of tangentially related to that it's interesting that this came out during a pandemic which obviously wasn't planned at all but i i did feel like there were kind of resonances there um that wouldn't at all have been designed uh but that ended up being kind of interesting i think i think so and i think those resonances are are um most significant in those beginning episodes because I feel like the kind of the scepticism around COVID, the conspiracy theories, stuff to do with vaccines and stuff, it, mm. that that seemed familiar in terms of that beginning bit where there's a bunch of gay people who don't believe in the HVH crisis. Sorry, my dog is making a really loud noise next to the microphone <laughs> and like okay. snorting. Can you, can you not? He just really wants to go on my lap, but he's going to be too oh. loud if I do that. So can you, you have to oh, go? Buddy. So basically, I think that the the resonance it has because of COVID is most significant in those first few episodes, I think, because when it's talking about this new virus coming in and the different reactions people have to it, I definitely felt like, yeah, there was an unintended sort of link. Yeah, absolutely. Although there was one other thing that I thought was really because they at one point, Jill's parents reference one of whom is played by the real Jill. Um reference princess diana shaking uh hands with uh the people with aids Mm. and i did think it was so funny that boris johnson obviously so obviously tried to replicate that Mm. but like it's completely different boris because first of all you can get covid by shaking hands with somebody with covid you can't get aids by shaking hands with somebody with aids unless you are incredibly unlucky yeah um you both have like cuts that are bleeding and that align or something um second of all 
it is completely different destigmatizing AIDS than destigmatizing COVID because you mm. don't have COVID for the rest of your life. Yeah. Like, it's a completely different thing, but he was so clearly trying to be Princess Diana and yeah. like going around shaking hands. It's like on so many levels, you are not Boris. Yeah. Like, um, but yeah, that did just kind of tickle me. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. And I suppose one thing I did want to kind of touch on, um, I, don't, I imagine that you were kind of aware of the whole kind of gay party boat controversy and all of that stuff last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose there's maybe a link to be made there about about abstinence, I suppose. Obviously, it's a it's a different thing uh, with COVID. It's abstinence from getting too close to people and, you know, and socializing, all of that partying. Uh, whereas with AIDS, you know, it's um, sexual uh, mm. specifically. But I suppose there's a similar thing there, right? Like, to what degree do you push abstinence to what degree do you shame people for not abstaining you know what is a level of responsibility that you ask of people you know how much flexibility do you have so I just I don't know I thought that was interesting as well yeah I mean it, I don't know one one of the things that I kind of thought more about in it's a sin is the way that it doesn't really you know, there's one scene where they're like, oh, we have to use a condom and then it doesn't really work. So they just yeah. don't use a condom. And I don't know, the dialogue in that scene was so cliche. But anyway, um, <laughs> just the kind of. Yeah. Oh, my God. I can't feel anything when there's a condom. And like, it's OK. I trust you. And all this kind of stuff. But but I, I just felt like, um, you know, gay men did change their behavior and there wasn't really much of a conversation about safe sex I mean I kind of would be interested I mean I guess the thing is back then it, it may have been slightly less well known exactly how transmission happened and people might have been scared a lot of people would have been scared maybe of doing any form of of sex at all because they weren't completely sure exactly how it was transmitted so you know fair enough it's not showing other forms of sex that aren't anal sex and showing that's okay and people are okay with condoms I don't know um but it felt like there wasn't much there wasn't much in it about that about the the way that gay men change their behavior yes. instead we have Richie kind of doing this very sort of self-destructive thing and mm. which culminates in this sort of weird monologue where he's on his deathbed telling his mum he remembers all the faces of the men who he who came when I, it was very I just I hated that scene as well <laughs> uh, I mean did you think I'd be curious to know what you thought of the female characters like the the portrayal of Jill and the portrayal of Richie's mother I guess Mm -hmm. being the most significant ones because I I kind of had a problem with both of those yeah so okay I just want to read you out something actually this is from How Britain is Reacting to It's a Sin by Scott Bryan in the New York Times and he quotes Lisa Power, co-founder of Stonewall, as saying about uh, Lisbeth Ruki, the uh, Muslim lawyer character. It infuriates me that a lot of coverage of the show has concentrated on Jill as the avatar of good womanhood and being this lovely, soft, supportive person. 
I want to hear more about the stroppy lesbian solicitor who most people have not even managed to read as a lesbian. Um, so I have a lot of sympathy with that. I do take issue with a couple of things. First of all, I do not think Lisbeth is stroppy. I think that's a really bizarre word to use. Um, I also think that implying that it's the fault of the audience for not reading her as a lesbian, I think kind of absolves the text of the fact that it is not textually made clear that she is queer. Um I mean, I actually read her as potentially being trans, but like there's no textual indication one way or the other about like whether she's trans, um, whether she's a lesbian, whether she's bi, like if she's queer and what way she's queer. So I don't think that that's on the audience necessarily. I feel like that's kind of on the text. And like I said, I don't agree that she is stroppy. But I totally agree that this is a character who was underserved in comparison to Jill, who is very much this, I don't know, a cipher in many ways. I agree with you. I think it's in episode two where she's kind of doing all this detective work, which is quite interesting. But she doesn't really seem to have a life of her own or any hobbies or interests of her own beyond being a carer and a supporter of people with AIDS. And... You know, even when she's first introduced, it's very much as like a facilitator for Richie to meet Ash. And then from that point onwards, she's basically supporting him all the time, going home with him to his mum and dad. Um, And, you know, we don't really I mean, we do see her with her parents a couple of times, but it's always because they've come to visit because of an AIDS related thing and they're talking about AIDS. Right. Um, like, yeah, and she, we she doesn't have a life her... outside that. Exactly. Like, I, I think it's telling that we don't meet her parents, I think, until episode four. And yeah. whereas the other main characters, we know more about their, their family yes. life. Well, um, the first episode is basically split into this kind of triptych of Roscoe, Colin and Richie. And then Jill and Ash are very much supporting characters, even though Jill becomes much more important later. Ash doesn't. It's quite weird And even in the material around the show, it's talked about it's about four friends. And on the poster, Ash is there. But then in the blurb, it's these four friends being Colin, Roscoe, Richie and Jill. Um, It's really bizarre how he's sidelined both like in the kind of extra textual stuff around the show and within the show. Um, But to get back to the female characters, yeah, I think Jill really doesn't seem to have a life of her own. It's really weird. I think it's also, it's interesting, you know, thinking about like other AIDS narratives, almost always they seem to centre white cis gay men and straight women. That seems to be pretty consistently the pattern. And I mean, you know, I've been doing this reading about um, so the Blood Sisters who were, you know, this group of lesbians who gave blood because gay and bisexual men were not allowed to. Um, The Lesbian Avengers, um, all of these lesbian groups and groups of queer women who, you know, were very active in AIDS activism and who almost never seem to get any kind of recognition in these narratives um so I think that's really interesting um in terms of Richie's mother 
Okay, so the Brian Mullen piece that you linked me to, which I pretty much agree with almost everything that he says. Um, there is one thing that I don't entirely agree about, which is he he says that um, mothers, particularly Richie's mother, get the blame more than Thatcher. Whereas I kind of read potentially Richie's mother almost as being a Thatcher avatar, if that makes sense. So right. the blame that she was getting was kind of symbolic of the blame being put on Thatcher as being this kind of um, failure of a maternal figure or a powerful woman figure in safeguarding the country. Mm, um, interesting. So I kind of wonder if there's that aspect that he doesn't engage with but then again you know that's my reading maybe that doesn't ring true to other people um I don't I mean look I think I think the thing with Richie's mother is really weird but I I don't know if it's entirely fair to say that the show is all about bad mothers because I think okay Colin's mother obviously totally angelic Jill's mother, lovely, played by the real Jill. Um, I'm talking in the context of the show, uh, lovely. Um, And in Roscoe's case, um, you know, it's his father who's much more a source of conflict than his mother, even though, you know, both of his parents are kind of problematic, but the relationship with his father is the much more strained one. Mm. So I don't know if it's fair to say that across the board mothers are blamed, but I do think that in that big final monologue of Jill's that's aimed at Richie's mother, that is the idea that you are left with. And I think that monologue is bananas. Um, (laughs) Like, so weird. It just feels like... um... This is Russell T. Davis's thesis on the AIDS crisis. Yeah. Um, like, I but just... like, it doesn't even really bear out the rest of what the show seems to be doing to me. It seems to, it seems like he's, it seems as if it's summing up what the other, all the storylines have been building towards. But actually, it doesn't really, like, it doesn't really synthesize all of these different themes and ideas that he's been playing with, such mm. as they are. Yeah, I agree. It was a bit like, oh, so this is what he thinks the show's about then. Yeah. Um, okay. Like, I like... never would have got there by myself, like, mm. based on what had come before, that that was what he was driving at. Yeah, I mean, I just, I don't know, there's a lot to lot to say about, I mean, first of all, with regards to, I, I kind of agree with, with Jill being this slightly bland supportive figure I also just as an aside I don't think the acting was that great from most of the cast personally although I don't know whether part of that is like yes I kind of feel like that is the kind of acting that people do when they're acting a Russell T Davis script (laughs) yeah you know what I mean yeah maybe it, it just seems to bring that out in people to me I don't know yeah possibly um but um, and yeah, I don't I don't think we get any much of an internal life from her, which and it annoyed me that there was this she was held on this pedestal afterwards, the whole, you know, be more Jill thing. Mm. And it's like what what be more of just a sort of 
maternal supportive person with no real internal yeah. life um yeah and there was this bit in the last episode where you know um Richie's mother is is sort of having a go at her um and he she said something like you know maybe you should be concentrating on getting a boyfriend yourself or something like that and it feels like the show is it's uh, is it going to make a, is it going to make a point now that actually she has almost given too much up yeah life i felt that way as well but it felt like it didn't really it didn't really follow through with that idea absolutely and then which is my yeah i mean i like kitty whores um but i just i don't know i thought the scene with her pacing around the hospital was fairly effective but the scene with ruth sheen in that dining room i was like again it was that what you might call the forced naturalism thing yeah i didn't where, believe in and that she keeps, at she keeps, all she's going and she's like i'll just be two ticks and they're like okay and they're like you know trying to ignore this woman she's like i'm just getting some squash do you want <laughs> some squash just like this really forced sort of like um you know small talky interaction and you just know it's building to some sort of big moment really obviously yeah. and then she just sort of yells at her and you can tell it's supposed to be a yards queen sort of moment for the They're audience like, how again, dare you not know that it. your son was gay it's like i'm sorry are we encouraging parents to just guess that their kids are gay without being told now like i yeah. don't I, I mean like i hate this idea that it's like it's like when people you know there's like those heartwarming coming out stories where people are like I told my mum that I was gay and she said oh sweetheart I know I've always known and it like it does my head in because it's like no you don't guess people's sexuality you wait for them to tell you you can't just you can't just impose that on people that's Mm. not a supportive thing Mm. do you know what I mean and it feels like it's really pushing this idea that you should just like, even if somebody doesn't tell you their sexuality, you should decide on their behalf whether they're gay or not, because that's the supportive thing to do. I don't buy it. Like, that's, yeah, I, I don't like, buy into that. You know, where the fuck have you been? As though, like, you know, you should have known this because, you know, any decent parent would have, you know, been so intrusive on their son's life that they had to have known their sexuality even if the that son didn't want them to know it you know what I mean like or or any decent parent would assume that because he's into stereotypically gay stuff that he is gay yeah like oh okay yeah that's a great idea like let's just trade on stereotypes to decide what people's sexuality is rather than waiting for them to like figure their shit out and come to you about it you know Mm. uh so yeah that bothered me and also and this is a really minor and petty point but people in this show kept saying we're done here which i don't yeah or like are we done i don't think english people said that in the 80s like I think that's a really American thing that didn't really make its way over here until like late 90s at the earliest like I just don't think that's like an English idiom I know that's really petty and it's not what we're talking about but it's just like another thing of like the dialogue just not ringing true yes um, in certain ways I think the the point about the lawyer is interesting because I I think I read that as well. And I, I don't think I read her as a lesbian, but I just thought that scene was ridiculous. It was just, <laughs> I just, 
you know, she well, the way she just comes marching in and you know, it's trying to create this big moment. And I can't remember some of the things she said. So, you know what that is? Expensive. There's a word for that. Expensive or something like that. You know, that, that sort of one liner. Um, but I I agree. Like you kind of she just becomes that sort of like larger than life character who's then not really anything else. And, um, you know, I think there was maybe like one potentially lesbian character you know at a dinner table who kind of yeah there's there's yells at one point but you you know you're not really you're not really definitely a lesbian character because Richie says something about lesbians and then like turns to her and says like sorry or no offense or something but I don't think she has any lines of dialogue or a name Yes, I think that's right. And so I, I do agree, there is definitely an element of, you know, there are more stories to be told, you know, more people involved in this that we still don't really know their perspective of. Yeah, definitely. Which is a shame. And I feel like it also, it it felt like as it was going further on, to me, which again, I appreciate that other people who haven't seen so many AIDS narratives won't be going into it with this. But it felt like we're ticking off the boxes here of all that, you know, we're going to tick off the boxes of the homophobic family and the homophobic parents not letting people into the funeral. And then we're going to have like a random scene about Section 28 that's got nothing to do with the rest of the show. Oh, my God, and I know. And we're it's going like, to have a, a, prote- a single protest scene. And that, you know what I mean? Oh, my God. I hated the protest scene. I hated Richie coming in at the end, jumping on the cop's back and the swelling music behind it when he's been so absent I mean like I in a way I kind of like the fact that Richie is in some ways unsympathetic and kind of an anti-hero I think there's something interesting there Mm -hmm. but I do also think that there are moments where it seems to want to make you cheer for him in a way that I never felt like doing and that was one of those moments where he comes in and he jumps on the cop's back and the music swells. And it's like, well, OK, but everybody else was here the whole time. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, you already kind of did that beat anyway with Roscoe turning up when they weren't expecting him to show up. Mm-hmm. And then to try and then do that beat again with Richie, but have big swelling music behind him and everything. One thing I did want to mention about that is that I thought it was kind of interesting each episode ended with a death except for that episode that's the only episode that doesn't end with a death Mm. instead it ends with the protest and with Richie saying that he's gonna live which of Mm. course he doesn't um but I I thought that was kind of interesting Mm. but it did make me think every single person that we see with AIDS in this show dies Mm. and I don't know if that's true of the other certainly not of like the AIDS narratives I've seen that work for me um like there's no representation of anybody living with AIDS Mm. yes and I I think think maybe it's missing that yeah I think so and it's part of another element of it that kind of historicized it a bit and it's mm. kind of like you know it was really bad loads of people were AIDS and then they died and that happened in the 80s kind of thing and there's there's obviously the story of you know people living with HIV even then there's the mm. whole people living with HIV and people living with this for a while and what that is like they touched it a little bit with Richie because they jumped forward and he had been living with HIV for a while but 
you know, there's a whole story about people who survive this yeah. and the, the kind of trauma that that brings because, you know, all their friends died. And then there's also what living with HIV is like, you know, now and how it's changed in the last 30 years. I mean, I do appreciate, it, you know, I, I don't want to go too much like this is what the show should have done because, you know, there is a limited scope here and, you know, it can't do everything. But yes, I do I do think that it could have dealt slightly with the fact that what happened with medical treatment in the 90s and that people don't die of AIDS anymore like mm. I I, th- I heard that they were thinking of doing more episodes and that there was going to maybe be a flash forward with Jill um, which might have been good I even think it could have put a few bits of text up on the end saying something to some some sort of final statement about you know so and so many people died in the age of the AIDS crisis and fortunately not so something like that it would have mm. been clunky I think it would have been clunky but I think the rest of the show is clunky it's not, <laughs> yeah. it's not subtle so I don't think it would have been like out of step with it yeah. I, I personally wouldn't have minded um something like that but I think the thing is with with sin which is difficult because I do I am I am wary of trying to be too much like you know it should have done this it should have done this what about this what about this? Because I do appreciate, like, you know, they're writing a drama, they have to create drama and they have to, and there's a limit on how many episodes they've got and trying to make it accessible, which obviously it succeeded at. But there's also kind of like, I think there's, there's, you, there's also you just like earlier that like the Terence Higgins Trust have kind of had to step in and say, hey, here's what you didn't see. And like, you equals you and you can go and prep and stuff like that yeah yeah um, I, think, I don't know I think there's there's criticism of the show for you know it could have done this it could have done this and I can see some defenses of that because you know it can't do everything and in many ways it succeeded in what it sets out to do but the other things which are to do with you know the actual nuts and bolts like writing the dialogue and those sort of things are, are where I I kind of have the biggest problem. Like mm. I can see, for example, like um, I know the Brian Marlon piece you mentioned talks quite a lot about what what it says to have Richie do these sort of monologues in the last episode that talk about, you know, the way he might have spread the virus when he knew he was, you know, infectious and mm. he did it anyway. And it's all to do with shame and this sort of, um, self-destructive drive or whatever um, that that is a problematic portrayal and I, I agree it is but watching it I don't even think about it so far because I'm so distracted by the fact that it's another one of these monologues that mm-hmm. is so removed from how people are talking I almost can't even take in the content of it so much because it just um, rubs me up the wrong way yeah I mean as I said I I liked it more than you did which is still I I still had major issues, as I said. Um, But what's funny is, okay, I want to read you another quote from an article. And this one is in Slant magazine. um, And it's by Keith Ulich. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Sorry, Keith. Um, But he says, a number of films and TV shows have exploited this era for sentimentalized woe is earth pathos. But Davies has never been partial to pity. What distinguishes his work is how vivaciously alive and uproariously funny it tends to be, even as your heart breaks. I mean, reading that, I was like, what show did you watch? 
because I enjoyed parts of it quite a lot and it worked on me emotionally quite a lot but sentimentalized woe is me pathos is absolutely how I would describe the show like uh, I mean I it's I mean it's I agree I think that there is a certain energy to it that he tries to counter the I think what the writer is trying to get out is the way that he has bits of it that try and counter the the typical like very gloomy tear jerky elements of this story um I can see the attempts to do that in maybe in more in the beginning episodes because it tries to portray this um vibrant gay London of that era and I think the music the music does this too but I feel like there are you know for example Colin's death and the way that it like I don't understand I don't really know how people found that really sad even though I like Colin because Mm. of the way that it intercut his death scene with like how he got AIDS yeah and it was this very weirdly like as just an aside I find that the sex in Russell T Davis shows is always done in this slightly comic way Mm. that I find irritating it's never very sexy it always feels a bit like um I don't know I I just I I get that you know fine sex can be awkward sex can be funny that is fine but I feel like in all of the ways it's depicted in Russell D. Davis shows, it's always got this weird humorous edge to it. And in that scene, it feels awkward because I'm like, it's sort of portraying it like it's funny, but also like maybe there's a consent thing that's not quite happening here. And there's there's something a bit weird about the dynamic that we're shown between Colin and this guy. Um, yeah, that, you know, I mean, I definitely read it as Colin being into it, I have to say. Like, he... In the dialogue, um, you know, he's kind of saying, oh, so you're always out of the house on a Thursday. Then. And, you know, it seems like he's kind of making plans to. Yeah, to I mean, up. yeah, I think I think probably it was consensual. But I just feel like the way just the way that the sex is portrayed um, in this quite. I don't know. I found I found that intercut with his death scene just took me out of the like emotional response that I might have yeah and I also think with Colin because of the dementia it ends up being about everybody else experiencing his death more than about him Mm. um experiencing it um and you know maybe there's a kind of ableism angle that we can talk about there um but also yeah the the reveal that he had sex with the guy at the place where he was lodging it's like what what is the point of that narratively like what are we supposed to gain from learning that I I don't understand what point he's trying to make by withholding that information and then revealing it at the end like it's a twist um I don't really get what the uh, you know the intention behind that choice is I mean, I think there's a, a thing about the, the kind of question of which is always like, you know, how did you get it? How did yeah. you get, you know, and that is something that the narrative of the show just invites us to ask about Colin, because you've got a Colin and Richie sort of 
opposites of you know one sleeps yeah. with everyone and one we're shown being you know this sort of good boy and as far as we know he never has sex with anyone yeah. um and so I don't know I don't know it didn't bother me at the time but thinking about it more I don't know whether having that as part of the narrative this whole like how did he get it how did he get it and now we're going to reveal how he got it whether that is necessarily a very sensitive way of showing mm. this um but I can see that the wider point that he was trying to make is, um, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you have sex or how few times you have sex. All it takes is like one instance. And that sure. is and so which that's like the general point he's making, which I feel like fine. But I, yeah, yeah I absolutely. Sure no, that. I mean, like I get that element of it. And like, I think that's, yes, a fine point to make. Um, but I just felt like the way that it was done was really odd. And it also feels like at that point in the episode, you've kind of moved past how to get it. Yeah, because mm. it's it's about like his rights and, you know, like what's happening to his body and his mind and how that's affecting everybody. It kind of feels like we're past worrying about how he got it, mm. which to be honest, like I never, I was kind of like, okay, so nobody has seen him have sex. That doesn't mean he hasn't had sex. Like at some mm. point in the last like four years or however long they've been living there, like, mm. you know, um, I'm sure he's had a chance to have sex at some point, even if we haven't seen it. Like it, I wasn't really that bothered about, you know. Uh, so yeah, it, it felt weird to kind of pitch it as being a mystery. And then, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I felt like the structure of that and the reveal was odd. Yeah. Um. Do you do you have anything else that you want to get into? I have one more point I want to make about it's the same before we move on. No. I well, I do just want to say yeah. that uh, <laughs> a general point about Russell T Davis is that I have read interviews with him. I've listened to. I think I listened to his Desert Island Discs. Mm. Um. And I vaguely know people who've worked with him. And from everything I've heard, he is a very nice guy. And, <laughs> I'm sure that's um, true, yeah. And uh, apparently he's also like, you know, he's a great mentor and he supports other people's writing. And, you know, I do feel like he means well. So I don't mm. want to like um, rag on him too much because I don't like his writing. Um, but I did just want to say, I just want to say that. Yes, absolutely. I have heard nothing but nice things about him as a person and I agree I think the intention is good I think in some ways the effect of this show has been good yeah. you know in terms of really raising awareness about certain aspects of HIV and AIDS if not maybe ones that are super relevant now but still yeah like you said the effects have been good and you know some of these problems I probably have are exa exaggerated because of just how big the show has become yeah and you know if this was a very minor thing um, then some of these points would not be quite as relevant. And, you know, Russell T, it's not Russell T. Davis's fault um, that it was, that that's ended up being the case, that it's ended up becoming such a huge cultural phenomenon in a way that has made some of these problems I have with it a little bit more, they have a little bit more resonance with me. I guess. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, you know, sometimes, yes, the reaction is to the reaction as much as it's to the thing. And I think that's fine. That's fair enough. But yeah, I mean, you know, it is clear that the uh, AIDS crisis has not been sufficiently memorialised and we can tell that just from the response that this show has had. But I did just want to say, well, actually, a couple more things, and it is getting back to the whole representation thing. Um, so 
apart from you and Brian Mullen, the only negative uh, take I have heard on this show is uh, from a bi organisation about the bisexual representation in the show, which I do agree is terrible. So in the first episode, um, you have the kind of predatory older married guy and I was kind of like, well, OK, but I think he's supposed to be a closeted gay guy, not like a bisexual guy. So whatever. Uh, and then you have uh, Richie being kind of like, well, really, I'm bisexual. And it's like the point is, oh, it's ridiculous to think that he might actually be bisexual. Obviously, that's just something gay guys say when they're not ready to admit they're gay yet. Obviously, he's gay. And then in like episode two, there's a bit where he goes, do bisexuals only have it every other day? And at that point I was like, okay, we'll stop now. <laughs> um, and then you have the Stephen Fry character. And at this point I was like, what is going on now? Where Roscoe seems to be fine with the fact that he's a Tory, seems to be fine with the fact that he clearly loves Margaret Thatcher. It's only when he gets an erection thinking about Thatcher that Roscoe seems to get upset. <laughs> Like, Roscoe yeah. seems excited to meet Thatcher until he finds out that his lover is bisexual and then he pisses in her coffee. Like, <laughs> what true. is going on there? Like, that was so bizarre. Because, like, at first I was kind of like, oh, I think this organization might have been overreacting a little bit. Like, yeah, it's not ideal, but whatever. And then as it went on, it just got worse and worse to the point where I was like, okay. This is getting really ridiculous at this point. Mm. So I do just want to say, like, on that level, I really do think that it is terrible. And I just wish that, like most queer media, it had just not acknowledged the existence of bisexuality rather than acknowledging it in, like, such an awful way. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think It's so annoying because it's just... I, uh, I actually wasn't even sure if he was... I don't know. I mean, he says he's bisexual, so I kind of took that. Um, but then there was nothing else. I thought, oh, we're going to see a potential bisexual character here, and maybe we'll we'll see that play out in some way. And I'm, I was like, what was that supposed to be serious? And then I'm like, well, I don't want to say that. You know, if someone says they're bisexual, then then I'll believe them. But I, but then it just became such a like tossed off line. You're like, oh, well, was he even supposed to be bisexual then? Because yeah, um, no. If, if he was, way maybe. There could have been a much there could have been a way to incorporate that in without Yeah, no, I really don't think that he was. I think it was very much supposed to be, oh, you know, gay men will say they're bisexual until they really accept who they are. Right. Um they could have made Jill bisexual for fuck's sake. Like it yes. wouldn't have been that hard. Like, you know, like the or just don't use the word bisexual unless you're gonna like just be nice. Like fuck fuck's sake like just just either leave us out of it or throw us a bone you know like yeah. <laughs> it was just like so bad um but uh so that was one thing and then yeah I just do want to come back to Ash because I feel like he was I mean I feel like he and Roscoe were to some degree sidelined and at first I was kind of like well, I mean, Roscoe initially does seem to be one of the main characters, but then I feel like he gets less to do. His storylines are kind of more interesting on paper, but the way they're done feels a bit weird. Like, oh, right, he sleeps with Cassius and he goes back to that flat and then you see him like whispering in Stephen Fry's ear. And then he uh, like I didn't quite understand what that relationship was about and 
what that was achieving in the narrative and like yeah he has an arc you know with his relationship with his sister and his parents and everything but it all feels a little bit perfunctory compared to Mm -hmm. like the masses of screen time that Richie's family gets Mm -hmm. um and obviously neither Roscoe nor Ash does end up getting HIV but again that's a narrative choice but Ash just is totally sidelined in a way that's bizarre and it's like basically he gets that one scene in the first episode where he has that like awkward conversation with Richie. And then he gets one scene where he talks about uh, Section 28, which very much feels like he's just being used as a mouthpiece, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and you never meet his family at all. Mm. Um, you never really find out anything about his background so it feels like you know yes jill is kind of this supportive character without an inner life but it feels like it's even more so for ash Mm. and and i just i don't understand why you would include that character and then not do anything with him really um so i I did think that was very odd Mm. yeah i don't know i I mean part of this might be that you know there was a plan to have more episodes and then got less episodes and you know maybe these characters would have had more to do with it if he'd had his way Mm. um but i do agree you could have also then just cut the character or just done something a bit more interesting with them um yeah yeah uh it it just felt really odd um and i thought that was really unfortunate especially because I think, like, South a- again, representation, not to harp on about it too much, but, like, South Asian representation still really isn't where it should be in this country, and this was an opportunity, and just, you know, nothing ended up happening with it. Um, so I think that's a real shame. But, yes, I agree. Um, let's uh, talk about other uh, pieces of media that have tackled the AIDS crisis and what they've done well, what they've maybe not done so well, what they've done differently. Uh, what do you reckon? I know that you like Pride more than I do. Okay, so for me, like, I really thought that Pride was for straight people, but I have since talked to so many queer people who love it, so it's clearly like a me problem. And I do like, I don't dislike Pride, I just have a few issues with it. But I know you like it more than I do, and you feel like it handled the topic better so um yeah tell me why yeah I mean I I haven't seen Pride for a few years I I do I I definitely think it is operating on a mainstream crossover like mainstream British comedy level that It's a Sin is also going for um but I feel like it's a it's doing it better just in terms of the fact I think it's better written I think it's better acted I think it's funnier but also in terms of the portrayal of the AIDS crisis, it's not really the point of the film, but I think what it's what it does smartly is it knows that it can't just ignore it. Mm. But I think it find it finds a way to touch on it in a way that it's almost more powerful in its absence, in a way. So it's been a while since I've saw it, but there's a scene where I think he meets Russell Tovey who was maybe an ex who may be unwell and there's a slight connection in the main character's brain that okay I probably am positive maybe and it kind and then at the end it's revealed that he he died 
I can't remember how how soon afterwards. But for me, it kind of re um, contextualizes his actions. It adds, adds this extra layer onto his actions of he's almost you know, he's throwing himself into this in a way, in part because he doesn't want to face what's going on. And he doesn't want to face, you know, the HIV AIDS crisis or the fact that he might have it. And I found that like, I just found that quite moving in the end, that that, that was like this extra layer maybe to this character. And it kind of, I don't know, I thought that was just an interesting way of portraying that era and how someone might react to that era without that being the whole point of the film. Mm. But there was there was definitely a character in Pride who uh, did survive as well, wasn't there? I remember yes, absolutely sobbing at the end. I like I had, like Pride worked on me. Like don't get me wrong, and like I had some issues, but it did work on me. Uh, like I absolutely like was in floods of tears when there was this text that came up at the end about one of the characters who had actually survived. Yes. And again, I, yeah, and again, I think that's the like it's really powerful to see people um living with aids um and there's oh god i mean there's this like really obscure play that you've probably never heard of it's called angels in america uh (laughs) colon a gay fantasia on national themes Mm -hmm. um but, but like you know that moment at the end where prior like addresses the audience and says something like I've now been living with AIDS for five years um Mm. which is four years longer than I managed to live with Lewis or something like that yeah yeah I agree that is a power and it is a powerful moment and what makes it so great is you know that was written in the early 90s still Mm. sort of the height of it but it managed to still incorporate this narrative of it almost has flash forwarded a few years and it's showing someone living with it and and surviving Um, absolutely which which is which is powerful i mean uh, yeah i you know it's been a while since i've seen pride so you know that's all i can really say on it really is that i felt like the way it touched on that for me was quite powerful and i i agree i did cry i think or i was very emotional at the revelations at the end Mm. and that was more emotional than I felt at any point during It's a Sin. Yeah I mean I think I would agree I know I was emotionally involved with It's a Sin but I certainly didn't weep or anything (laughs) like I I had a few little like sniffles and stuff but yeah I didn't it didn't work on me in the same way at all Mm. um and you know speaking of characters living with aids another one um tales of the city i think and again like this is what although a trans woman character in tales of the city very early on i mean god um he started writing that in the early 70s um and had a trans woman character very very early on and actually i think another thing that's interesting about that is that he had a character that he had been writing for 10 years before that character then got hiv in in the narrative because it was serialized you know um Mm. which is kind of interesting so you had this character who was defined by so much more than being you know somebody with hiv or Mm. with aids and then, you know, and then he took a long break, Armistead Morpin and the Tales of the City books. And then he came out with Michael Tolliver Lives many years later, which, again, I thought was really powerful that he decided to return to this character and had that affirmation right there in the title and like very much at the center of it. This character that maybe you thought was doomed lives and not only does he live, but that is like central to what 
Maupin's kind of trying to do there. Mm. Um, and it, so again, I, you know, I, I think that having characters living with AIDS is so powerful and such an affirmation. And um, uh, not every narrative has to do that, but I do think. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, I actually, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not a very well versed tales uh, of the city person because I only read the first book and then like the first episode of the new Netflix thing. Yeah, um, the reboot. Know, I, mean, I didn't even know that. It's Anna Anna Madrigal, is that the mm. trans woman? You know, yeah. I didn't even know that she was trans until I saw that episode because that's I don't think that's revealed in the first Tales no, of America. No, or, or I think it's like or the or second or third, maybe. Okay, because I was like, oh, was I just really stupid? I just didn't pick that up. Uh, or is that not revealed until later? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, no. Uh, and of course, Olympia Dukakis, who plays her, is not trans. But that is like a holdover from the series that they made yes. back in the 90s, I want to say. So, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I really like the ser- the original series that they made you know Laura Linney Paul Gross all that stuff I mean I know Laura Linney is in the new actually both of them are in the new one aren't they I I thought the reboot was a bit ropey but what I will admit is that there is that dinner party scene I don't know if you got this far I I Um, only saw the first episode but I heard of a dinner party scene that people seem to like Oh my god, I was so called out by that scene. Basically, um, so Michael has a younger boyfriend who's mixed race, and um, they're all at a dinner party, and Michael and his friends are talking about the AIDS crisis, and about how the younger boyfriend couldn't possibly understand how it felt. And the younger boyfriend is kind of like, look you know I experience racism and you know so that's a thing for me so it's it's interesting and complex and like there you definitely have sympathy for kind of both sides of that debate but there is one line where one of Michael's friends says to the younger boyfriend you think you know what it was like what because you saw angels in America and I was like (laughs) oh my god I'm so called out by that line (laughs) like I was like, oh, no, that's me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to say that my uh, Angels in America was a big part, as well as a few other things of me having a lot of fear towards HIV when mm. I was like a young gay man that slightly dissipated around 2015-16 when I, you know, came to understand that people don't really die of it anymore. Yeah. Um, but uh but Angels in America was definitely a big, a big part of that. Um, and uh, yeah, interestingly, um, did you ever watch ER? Uh, yes, I have seen quite a bit of it, but uh, not the whole thing. So I never saw it when I was younger, but decided to start watching it last mm. year during uh, first lockdown from the beginning because I've never seen it. And I started from season one and I'm on season four now. And um, there is a prominent, like, HIV AIDS storyline in it that begins in sort of season three about a woman who is a sort of nurse character who um, her story up until this point is she has an affair with one of the doctors while she's still married. The affair ends, but then her marriage ends and her husband was cheating on her. She had a bad marriage blah 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 
But then I think the husband comes in ill and gets a routine test and he's HIV positive. And then she has to take a test and she finds out she is too. Um, and there's a whole storyline of, OK, she has to deal with that. She has to get on the medication. Who knows at the hospital? You know, one person manages to find out because she finds out that the husband came in and then um she decides to keep it a secret from the rest of the hospital staff and then there's a whole thing about the rest of the hospital staff finds out and there's a whole inquiry can they still let her work in the hospital when she's HIV positive because they're worried about patient safety but they also can't discriminate and it's just it deals with like a whole bunch of issues with living with HIV but also you know wider moral questions and um Sorry, my dog is barking. It's really okay. Flow again. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, the, this portrayal of this, um, the portrayal of this woman's storyline on it, on ER of her living with HIV, I find very interesting in a number of ways because it, it almost it just seems like it's telling a more interesting story than lots of the recent things I've seen, mm. which are historicizing the awfulness of the crisis in the 80s but this one is actually talking about the reality of what it was like living with it basically when it just became treatable but mm. there's still a bunch of questions I found it interesting there's, there's this one bit where um she confides in one of her colleagues who becomes her friend who's like the one colleague who knows about it um and you know she she has her first you know one of her first blood tests and she's like oh I found out that you know my cd4 count is this and you know um my the viral load is undetectable um and then the other was like oh that's great news but you know and then she finishes the sentence and she's like yes but i know that means that i could still transmit it to another person and i just found that whole conversation interesting because i'm like okay because back then no one knew that untransmittable mm. um, yeah that's but, really but, interesting but they still they still knew that you could be they still knew that the viral load went down and that that was good um but they hadn't quite made the link to that being untransmittable yet um so you know i and i found that in this one of the things i'm interested in talking about in the documentary podcast documentary i'm thinking of making about um sort of hiv after it's a sin is when these milestones happened and what what people thought living with hiv about you know whether this was working and when people started to adjust their, you know, their life expectancy and things yeah. like that, uh, which I find quite, I don't know, quite interesting, but I'm kind of going off on one. But anyway, that, that part of ER, which is starts at the be- end of season two, beginning of season three of this, ma- of this character, um, it's very interesting um, historical portrayal of someone living with HIV, which in some ways to me is more interesting than recent depictions. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that that's a straight woman as well um i i don't know you might be interested in watching closing numbers um i believe that it's still on all four um this is the thing that i watched pretty recently um for it was made for world aids day in 1993 so early days um Mm. but yeah like mostly from the point of view of a straight woman played by jane asher who has a bisexual husband Mm. um and again like from a representation point of view not ideal but kind of interesting in its approach i think Mm. um and yeah interesting that it chooses to use a straight woman as the kind of way in to that issue um whereas like most AIDS narratives have centered um like 
white gay men. Yeah, I mean, there's something interesting to be said about that, because in some ways, you know, people who aren't white gay men are the more forgotten group of people, mm. groups of people who, um, you know, were living with HIV or died of AIDS. Um, but also it's it's a slightly safer route into the mainstream when told in the yeah. 90s. Absolutely. And it, it's very much like, you know, it slightly plays into perhaps this wider cultural belief that, you know, some people do things and, you know, they're kind of asking for it, whereas other people are these more innocent, you know, bystanders of, in terms yeah, of how like they got the it. Chris Morris, good AIDS, bad AIDS thing, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, no, that's definitely true. And yeah, like that's kind of the response that I had to it as well. But I do think that it it's kind of interesting in the sense that it is like an early um, take on it from a British perspective. And, you know, yeah, using that root of, of a straight woman it is written by a gay man. And there are also uh, gay male characters and the bisexual husband. Um, that's how they say it. <laughs> bisexual. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, I wouldn't like recommend it in terms of saying that it's good, but I would potentially recommend it in terms of saying it's interesting. Like, it's a historical mm. document of how um, the AIDS crisis has been represented. Um, have you heard my Dallas Buyers Club rant yet? No, but uh, always here for a Dallas Buyers Club rant. Oh, my God. My absolute least favourite uh, movie about the AIDS crisis and maybe like queer. Mo- well, it's not even queer, right? Because they made mm. the character straight, even though in real life there is a very strong possibility that he was bisexual. Mm. Um, They create this trans woman character who is completely fictional. They call her fucking Rayon. And then have her, di- first of all, have her played by Jared Leto and then have her die off so that the straight characters can cry. Um, there's this scene. Well, look, you can probably tell me uh, more about this because I might be wrong about this. But there is a scene where the Matthew McConaughey character finds out that a woman is HIV positive and he goes, oh, thank God, and then has sex with her. Because it's like, oh, well, if we're both HIV positive, then we can just have sex and it's fine. Now, I believe I'm right in saying that even if two people are both HIV positive, it's not a good idea for them to have unprotected sex because people can have like different strains. Um, I believe that is the case. I think it is. I believe that is the case. I feel like it would be OK now if they were on medication. But back then it's a bit yeah. like. Mm. Um, and I think that there are there are a number of reasons why it is more risky or you know not the best thing to do yes um, yeah. which, and maybe I know I vaguely remember that it's kind of like a bit it's kind of played off as like a bit of a joke yeah um, but it's, so it's like but the I guess the issue is that yes okay sure like from the point of view of those characters at that time you know whatever that's probably how they would have behaved but because this is a movie that is very much pitching itself as a kind of crossover movie for like a mainstream audience um in kind of the philadelphia mold i would say Mm. um that then to have something that is so like misinformed especially now 
just feels really mis- misguided. And then yeah. I guess also just the fact that that script clearly had been knocking around since the mid 90s. And if it had yes. come out in the mid 90s, it would have been okay, like not good, but like it would have been acceptable, I guess. Like you would have mm. been like, okay, yeah, I get it. Mm. But for it to come out this century and to still be pushing that narrative and like approaching the topic from that perspective it was just like it was so infuriating i hated that movie so much um, yes and not the, great the, yeah and from the guy who made crazy which i love oh yes john uh john mark valet who went then yeah. went on to do big little lies as well i mean yeah, yeah. i mean I, I will try and largely blame the script i think um as being the biggest problem there but yes i agree we probably should have made it and and, and uh, the casting and, Yes, and I mean, although I am sad that um, I'm sad that Jennifer Garner got her like one Oscar nomination for that film. I want uh, better things for her. Yeah. Um, anyway, don't get me wrong. But um, uh, I think I think I don't know if there's an if there's anything to say about the fact that you know we've had like a long time straight people telling this story, mm. and now we've got more gay people telling this story. But well, yes and no, time... right? Because Angels in America and Tales of the City are both like from I mean Angels in America was written in 1991 I want to say something like that and Tales of the City he was writing like from the 70s through into the 80s and then came back to like in the 2000s so and you know that they had do you think their audiences were largely gay or did they have I mean I guess they both must have had a fairly crossover audience yeah I, probably their audience is like skewed gayer than mm-hmm. something like Philadelphia. I think it would mm-hmm. be fair to say, yeah, for sure. Um, yes, definitely. Um, and yes, and I think It's a Sin probably has like more crossover mainstream appeal than either of those things, maybe. Although I would say Angels in America is pretty popular. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. It's quite, it's quite intellectual, though, isn't it? In a, yeah, in, it is. in a certain way. That's true. Um, yeah, I don't know. I was just wondering if there's anything about how, you know, like gay people are being able to tell this story a bit more themselves yeah. now. But it's, but then there's, but because it's being told now, it feels like it's therefore historicizing it a bit in terms of it's going, this is a thing that happened in the past. Mm. And, you know, wasn't that awful and kind of therefore implying isn't it better now and obviously it is better now in lots of ways but again it's that part that's it's that thing of not really there are stories to tell about the complexities of living with HIV after this period which I feel like you could you could kind of tell um and it's kind of a shame that that hasn't maybe happened from you know queer people as well as straight people maybe yeah I suppose I would I suppose my feeling is that queer stories are so often like circumscribed by tragedy and it's like the tragedy of homophobia and then the tragedy of AIDS right um and so it's so rare to find narratives of queer joy and I feel like that's what we need now which is not to say that you can't engage to a degree with homophobia or with AIDS you know but Mm. just that I feel like we kind of have done that and we we need stories about joy 
Um, and I thought that was, I didn't love Summerland, for example. I had problems with it, but I did think that it was joyful in a way that so many queer stories aren't allowed to be, especially like queer stories that are like set in the past. Um, I guess God's Own Country would be another example of that, like that, you know, allows queer people to have a happy ending, to uh, to have love and joy. Um, even though like God's Own Country, I mean, it's bleak in some ways, but it's uplifting. And I mean, I really like that movie. Um, you know, even something like Love, Simon, which I don't like as much as you do, but like, I, you know, it's important and it is moving towards that. Stories that, you know, acknowledge that everything's not always easy, acknowledge that there are problems, but also, you know, that that joy is possible for queer people, that it's not, that queerness is not like inherently bound up in tragedy and doom and like death and I feel like mm. those are the stories that we were told for so so long you know mm. Brokeback Mountain, Philadelphia I mean even Portrait of a Lady on Fire which I really like but it's still like you're not allowed to be happy though you know yeah. what I mean <laughs> like I just feel like maybe it's time to move away from that from from that tragic approach to to queer life and that doesn't yeah. mean that you can't have hiv positive characters and people with aids you know mm. like people people with aids and hiv positive people can be happy and like experience joy and mm. you know i think that's what i really like about angels of america and tales of the city is that it does have people with aids or hiv positive people who live and experience joy and mm -hmm. you, you know what i mean um, yeah, and, yeah. So I mean, there was there was a see, there was a bit in looking the second season where um, one of the characters starts seeing another character who is positive, who he knows and he finds out immediately on meeting him because he has like a tattoo on him or something. And then they start seeing each other. And I think there's like a conversation about being undetectable. And there's a scene where <laughs> a scene where they. I don't know if they're having sex. They're, they're doing something sexual, and um, one of the character, the the HIV negative character, gets like some cum in his eye or something. Oh my and god! He, wow. And he and he like runs to the bathroom and like washes his face out, and he just like has a bit of a freak out about it. He doesn't really say anything, but he just yeah. reacts in a way that he's like really trying to to sort of get it out. And then they have um, a scene later where the um you know the HIV positive guy they, they have a kind of an argument where the HIV positive guy is, is noting how he reacted and being like you know just be honest with me if this is a big problem and they, they kind of they make up and it's fine and he was like you know I just I freaked out but it's okay and I know and you know they were ultimately like a happy couple who were together still by the end of the show and like just that little interaction um you know, it felt kind of quite groundbreaking at the time because mm. so few modern, you know, portrayals of modern gay life and the kind of question of, you know, undetectability and people living with AIDS and, and those sort of conversations, you just don't see them. And I thought it's just come to mind when you'd be talking about it, that like, actually, that was pretty good. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I feel like I should have watched Looking when it came out. At the time, I think I was kind of like, Oh, I want to watch stuff with women in it, which I still think is like fair, but also I, I feel like I missed out because it sounds like it was a really good show. But 
I suppose, well, I do want to say one thing, and I have, I think I've recommended this film to you before, um, 1985, um, mm. which is very much about queer tragedy and does not do any of the positive things I was talking about. And yes, I really like it. And I think it's really well done. Um, so again, it's like, you know, not every story has to like tick X boxes or anything like it's so much about execution and I guess about just having a diversity of stories to do different things rather than being told the same story over and over again I guess is the important thing um there is also um summer 1993 which I think is a really interesting movie about HIV um Mm -hmm. and uh I really love that movie um and it's um like from a the point of view of a child who's parents are drug users who die of AIDS um and then there's a question as to whether the child might have HIV um so it's not about like queerness at all um Mm. but it is about HIV AIDS and um that's a really lovely film uh you know partly about kind of HIV and AIDS and stigma around that and everything but also just like a really lovely kind of child's eye view of of grief I suppose mm-hmm. um again not necessarily a joyful film um as such but um but an interesting approach to the subject that maybe we haven't seen so much of before so yeah well I'm I'm gonna try and watch Looking and maybe some of you are ER is on all four so, yes, you know, I've seen it. I've seen it on there, yeah. Um, well, so in, is the original beautiful. Tales of the City, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. It is um, one of those things I've been meaning to watch for about 15 years, probably since I met you, because I actually think you're, <laughs> I actually don't think I'd heard of it at all until I met you. Yeah, I have talked about it a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, I read all the books at like a really young age. And again, it's one of those things where like maybe it's just really formative. And maybe if you come to it as an adult, it doesn't resonate in the same way. But I still think it's, oh, yeah, I would really recommend the books or the original TV show, either the reboot, I think if you want to watch afterwards like out of interest but definitely doesn't give you like the the feeling of the original stuff at all Mm. uh the one thing i did want to mention actually is um have you seen i love you philip morris yes i did see it around the time it came out i think i remember quite liking it but i also don't remember it Um, it, it's just that I put it on my list of like AIDS narratives and I, I don't really have anything much to say about it except that I really enjoyed that movie and um, I am... Is there an AIDS narrative in it? I honestly don't remember. Yeah, so he, his first partner dies of AIDS and then when he's in prison, one of the cons that he runs is... Um, pretending that he has AIDS so that he can escape but yeah it's definitely touched on um but yeah I I, because I was watching It's a Sin and also um I Care a Lot which obviously is kind of like queer con artist stuff um Mm. it really made me think of I Love You Philip Morris which I have always had a real soft spot for (laughs) I don't have anything very profound to say about it but I just wanted to uh, yeah just add that into the mix as a potential uh, alternative AIDS narrative Um, and definitely one that is not mawkish or sentimental at all Um, yes and yeah really has a very light tone which is interesting I can't really think of any other 
A's narrative that has such a kind of irreverent approach to it, which I think is, I don't know, like, I, I like that. I, I think mm-hmm. there's room for that, you know, rather than, mm, I don't know, doom and gloom. Obviously, it was very, very, very sad. Don't get me mm. wrong. But, you know, maybe there is space for a, a slightly different tonal approach to it as well. Mm. Um, but I'm I'm planning on rewatching that pretty soon. So we'll see how it holds up. All right. Well, Fair enough. I feel I think we may have exhausted the topic, you know. We may have done. <laughs> I think we've really done a deep dive. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap it up? No, I don't think so. But yes, try and watch Looking. Yes. Well, I know it's HBO though, so it's a hassle, but I will do my best. Okay. Okay. And I still really recommend 1985. Okay. Um, I'll add it to my letterboxed watch list. Yes do okay right well it's been great talking to you about this thank you so much for coming on again and uh really cool to get those insights um so yeah thank you so much and of course people can follow you on twitter at johnny mmr and letterboxd ditto is that right yes and it's johnny no h and a y (laughs) all right uh well thank you so much and i hope to talk to you again soon cool thank you well it was great to talk to johnny again and get his perspective i realized after we finished recording that i forgot to mention buddies a great low budget film made in 1985 by arthur j bresson jr who also made gay usa which i talked about in my last episode It's one I really recommend, and you can always check out my write-up for it on Letterboxd at Panicky in the UK. A little bit of housekeeping now. You might have noticed that my episodes are becoming more intermittent lately. The truth is that I've been juggling work and studying towards a master's degree and a number of side projects, and the podcast has kind of fallen by the wayside as a result. For that reason, I'm not currently planning any more episodes. That's not to say there definitely won't be any more, I just can't commit to anything right now. If you've liked the episode so far and you're already subscribed, I'd love it if you stayed for any more episodes I'm able to make and for updates about my other projects. But otherwise, thanks so much for joining me this far and I hope you've enjoyed it. You can still find me on Letterboxd, link in the description, along with those two Johnny's accounts and the articles we've discussed. Thanks again for listening, and in case I don't see ya, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.